Hello, world. I'm your host, Max Patton, and this is Dreaming Polygons, the podcast where we explore the games industry by interviewing the voices and perspectives shaping its future, one polygon at a time. Today, I'm talking to Yafat Shaikh, professor of game design at York University in Toronto, and an experienced exhibitioner and artist working to expand on what we traditionally think of as games. She's done things like the Worksheet Saga, which turns Excel into a video game, and many more interesting projects that redefine the popular notion of games. Let's see what she has to say. Hello, everyone. I am with Yafat. Hi. Is that how I say your name? Yafat. Yafat. Okay, sorry. Yeah. First of all, we ask all of our guests the same questions usually, or at least the same first question. In this case, I think it should be interesting because I want to ask you, when did games become a part of your life? And when did you start realizing that they were something that you could do professionally? Oh, man, that's an odd story. So I'm old. Oh, I jokingly say I'm old. I'm in my mid-30s, which is ancient in this industry. I started playing games when I was a kid, like most people, but, you know, that was like early 90s. I think the first game I ever played was the original Prince of Persia. You know, we didn't have access to computers. Uh, I grew up in Jerusalem, so there's never, definitely wasn't anything. But I had a friend who had a PC. Uh, she was the only person with a PC. And she had uh, all the old point-and-click adventure games, uh, mostly the Sierra ones. She, I would come to her house and play because we had, my dad had a computer, but it was like a Mac. So we didn't have much there. That's always been true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was a few Mac games were really great, but there wasn't much in games there. I think it was a Mac 2 or something like that. So she had a PC and I would go to her place and play the PC. I think I was like 10 or 11. And then she moved out um, to another neighborhood and we sort of weren't in touch. So I didn't have, I still didn't have a computer. So I really didn't get into games at that point. You know, when later when there was more internet stuff, I would play Flash game, but I never actually thought about games as something outside of like, you know, playing solitaire on the computer and stuff like that. It never connected. So eventually I went to art school. I studied animation, 3D animation. And somewhere around the third year, sort of someone gave me a copy of like World of Warcraft with the 10 free days. It was Burning Crusade. And I got really into World of Warcraft uh, in the middle of art school and sort of almost failed art school because of it. Now, at this point, I was like in my mid-20s. So again, not a not a usual story to uh, than most people. And then I finished school, I sort of wandered a bit, worked as a graphic designer for a few years, but really, really got into games in a way that I never thought it was possible. I got really into playing games, obviously still playing World of Warcraft, but I was playing a lot of other games as well. And somewhere a few years later, I just was like, maybe I should do this, maybe for a living. And obviously Israel at that point, I don't think still has much of a game industry. And I was like, okay, what am I going to do? I had this vogue notion that I want to make games, but I also want to do a master's degree. Somehow I ended up in Canada doing a master's degree in like an art and technology program. My thesis was about games, video games. Specifically, it was about like the prisoner dilemma and video games and stuff like that. And I think ever since then, it's been a few years now, that's basically what I've been trying to do for a living. 
And so it was really going to school and then kind of becoming engrossed in a game, in this case, World of Warcraft, and then realizing later on the power of games that you became attracted to it professionally. Yeah, it it never was a thing until I think my late 20s. I never thought about it as a career. And I never thought about it as something enjoyable until then. And do you think that part of it was just that before growing up in Israel, it wasn't an environment super friendly to video games? Or do you think it was just an age thing? I think both. I mean, obviously, there's probably some guys from Israel who tell you a totally different stories. But, you know, Jerusalem, 90s, late, uh, early 2000, not exactly known for, you know, its technology high technology output and a lot of those stuff were just not accessible. Taxes for a lot of technology stuff were really expensive. And my parents were sort of the sort of people who were like, I don't see any, you know, value in video games aside from fun. And I think you can get fun other ways. So it just never was a thing. I think gender was part of it. I think just like the time, I think what at that particular time was accessible and what you could do. I don't think video game was a viable career in Israel until like three or four years ago. Real Army Simulator is a game that you uh, partially based off your earlier life experience in Israel because there's mandatory army service when you're younger. So based off that experience, how did you translate that into a satirical game? It sort of was a response to when I moved to Canada and everybody thought I was... Um, the main joke was if I can kill them because they thought I was super tough. Because you were in the army, right? Yeah, and like I was sort of figuring out very quickly that the concept that people have about army and warfare and combat and all those stuff here comes mostly from video games and TV. And it's not to say, oh, video game promote violence because that's not true but it's mostly our perception is very different and obviously like i i wasn't in a combat unit but even friends who were in combat unit you know our experience is very different than what you show in in reality and what i found that actually in many cases this sort of thing that i was trying to do in real army simulator which was talking about how the army is not this exciting heroic thing but it's actually just working in a very, very big corporation and sort of being a cog in the machine and you have to follow a lot of orders. And some of the orders don't make sense, at least not to you. And I found that the places who do that, who try to show that view, actually comes from comedy. So if you watch MASH or Blackadder or stuff like that, they, they showed off. They actually were a lot more realistic view of what my army experience or other people that I know army experience was. So that's how the satire came to be. And it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to make the game funny, but it's mostly like, I'm going to make a really boring game about something that's supposed to be really exciting. So in a way, it's a game that is made to troll people in a way. I've noticed, at least with the art style, for sure, right? You mentioned these yeah. big blockbuster games and movies have trained us to think that like warfare or not even war, the, the military, uh, if you're in yeah. the army, it means, you know, you're you're like a soldier in modern warfare and a Call of Duty game. Whereas your game, if, if, if you just look at it and there'll be a link in the description, people can check out the art style. It's very quirky and cartoony. It's not what you would expect. Yeah, it's also very pink. <laughs> which was uh, not originally a thought, but the more when I started working on it, it just became very obvious it's going to be very pink and very feminine. 
for one thing, because I'm a woman, right? right? And and my game was uh, about my experience had a lot. Some of the experience described were specifically for being a woman, uh, not so much like oh, you know, any sexism and stuff like that, but conversation that you know other women soldiers will have with each other, uh, and guys might have a totally different experience. So yeah, it's very feminine, and it's very pink and it's very cartoonish a lot of games that deal with warfare and army in combat are very gray and realistic and muscular and i was trying to do something completely different in a way yeah and i think it works it hasn't been released yet but there's been coverage of it before and people seem to be really intrigued by this because it's such a different experience from what you would expect in a military game yeah, I get a lot of, like, people get mad at me sometimes. Uh, usually people who aren't in the army where I'm, like, they find the game boring. And I'm, my idea was, like, that's sort of the idea. Right, like Papers, Please came out a few years ago. And that's not exactly what most people would call a fun game. But it's still a very good experience, right? You're checking all the people that come, come across the border. And it's supposed to be mundane and kind of show you how ridiculous yeah. it is. That's the, that's the point. Yeah. And I think it's one of the things that games can really do quite powerfully, making the player bored. And then another way you kind of expanded what we think of as games is uh, the Worksheet Saga, which is this mathematic game of life based off math and genetics. You recreated that in Microsoft Excel, and that sparked some buzz when it came out. Most people would not think of a spreadsheet software as a canvas for fun and experimentation. So what inspired you to make a game from that? So uh, that's another complicated story because all my games come from a complicated story. So I teach in university. I, I teach game design. I would say one of the first few weeks, we do an exercise about creating emergent gameplay, which is basically games that the players and the player action dictate where the game will go versus other games that where the designer decides where the player will go. In order to create an emergent gameplay, a lot of the time, the easiest way is basically using very simple rules to create very beautiful results. And the game of life, is, if people are aware of it, it's a, it's a medical equation trying to simulate life. And it actually has like four or five very, very simple rules. And when you set up these rules and you press a button because it's a simulation, uh, this beautiful, uh, very beautiful results show up uh, from a very, very simple abstract thing. The idea is always to try and get that, but take away the simulation and make it into a more game. Obviously, it sort of will always fall into toy category, but that's another story. And I really kind of was interested in exploring that concept more. But also, the reason why I did with Excel is because that's the main tool game designers use. So a lot of the stuff that people, especially as someone who teaches, a lot of stuff I get from people is... You know, there's very excited, especially with students, it's very exciting. You know, I want to be a game designer and they don't really know what it means. And if you look at especially AAA and stuff like that, a lot of the tools that they use is uh, game designers specifically. They use Excel and they use Word and they use PowerPoint. They don't use anything more exciting than that. So I wanted to go back to what is like how we did design a game and go back to this tool that we don't think is particularly exciting, but that's where a lot of our games are being created and designed. Obviously, similar to Real Army Simulator, it's not the most exciting of games. And in a way, it's also not the first game that was made in Excel. There's a few um, 
can't remember his name right now. And I know he follows me on Twitter, so I feel bad about it. But there is a guy who made a full-on RPG in Excel. So it was basically just to experiment and sort of go back to the idea of how we design games and the tools we use to design games. So what you were doing is really breaking down the game design because yeah. at the fundamental level, game developers are just using software like this because that's what games are mechanically. Like, this is why it's kind of interesting when people say like, oh, I don't care about game graphics. I don't care about visuals or I don't care about cosmetic microtransactions or any of that. I think it's kind of a silly argument to make because games are really visual. I mean, they're audio, they're audio experiences too, but I guess... They're audiovisual, right? They're not, a game is not just a mechanical thing. And even your Excel spreadsheet game, I think is, you know, more than just numbers because you have the colors and you have the big display going around and that still makes it a game. So I think it's kind of, it's really uh, brilliant what you've done, breaking a game down into its simplest elements. And I think showing in that process how essential those elements are. Not that I'm going to compare it to any larger game, but in a way, if you look at, you know, if I made this game and turn it into a 3D game in a game engine, I, you know, I easily get something like Minecraft. Minecraft, at least in the core, it's a few very simple rules and a few very simple graphics. And when they're joined together, they create something excited. But the worksheet saga will never be as interesting as, as Minecraft because... There's limit. First of all, there's the limitation of Excel itself, but also you're so dependent on the program. You're so dependent on the visuals that the program can provide. You can't really add a story. You can't really add sound. I mean, maybe you can add sound to Excel. I haven't tried that yet. It's never going to be the same exciting. But at the end of the day, if you look at the work, at our work as game designers, you know this is how it's going to look until someone puts it in the game engine. It has to be appreciated at a different level because you're, you're right. You can't appreciate the same about Minecraft. And people will say, oh, Minecraft's very simplistic. And they're right. But at the same time, even a game like Minecraft has a lot of effort put into the textures and models and art style. Those are things that matter a lot. And I think you learn to appreciate even more when you make them really simple. So you also did Reblink. And that was an augmented reality art exhibit uh, from the Art Gallery of Ontario, which you worked on. What was it like redefining the art viewing experience for that? What I had to do was take uh, 2D images that was painted in the art gallery in Ontario and create it into a 3D object and create a story around the 3D object. And that was a totally different experience than, let's say, something doing something like Real Army Simulator or uh, Riblink because the worksheet saga was about taking something that in potentially is beautiful and 3D and exciting and, and breaking it down to this most elemental basic component. Ribbling was the exact opposite. It's taking something that is 2D and all beautiful, but not, not exciting to a lot of people unless you know, they're really into appreciating art and making it exciting and 3D and technical and new uh, and adding elements to it that didn't exist before. So it's, it's, a, it's an interesting experience. Obviously, I would, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have specific creative inputs because I wasn't hired, uh, at least not for the stories that were chosen or the painting that were chosen. So most of my creative input was uh, the creation of the actual objects which was, uh, again, an interesting experience and in trying to figure out how to translate this 2D model into something that can look good in all sides. 
because again, I don't have, I don't know how this guy, let's say uh, the first one I did was like a Galileo painting. And I don't know how Galileo looks from the back, from that painting. I only have the front. Uh, so I have to sort of figure out how everything attaches together and everything looks from the back, how his hair falls down. Um, so it was a really interesting project uh, and in a way very, very different from uh, everything else I've done. But yeah, it's it's hard for me to say anything specific about the intention aside from, you know, the sort of trying to make art more accessible to people who go to the art gallery uh, and making art more exciting, which is always weird for me because I think art is exciting as it is, but um, yeah. Yeah, it seems kind of intimidating what you were mentioning, uh, having to, you know, imagine the back and sides of Galileo or, or turn these 2D paintings that are really famous into 3D images. Uh, that sounds kind of like is there any kind of pressure in doing that i mean yes because it's it's a lot of you really need to understand how body works and how hair works and anatomy and all those stuff that makes 3d work whereas an artist and and that happens like when you do it when you look at a 2d drawing and you translate it to 3D, in the most basic level, a lot of the parts will just be a little bit distorted because the painting drew it in the painter drew it in a specific way that will have like, you know, they wanted depth. So the arms might be huge. And the moment you put it in 3D, suddenly the arm is huge and you sort of have to figure out how to make the arm not huge anymore. So it will look somewhat realistic. So there's a lot of pressure of trying to understand how a thing works. It's very hard. I mean, I think, you know, and I, I've been doing this for 10 years as a 3D modeler. It took me 20 something hours for each model of a painting. I did like two because I wasn't available for anything else. But uh, the other 3D modeler I know had the same issues. It's it's a lot of work. It's very challenging work. Um, you know, it looks great, but I don't think people understand how much work it was just to translate this one drawing into a viable 3D object. And it's going to be really interesting with augmented reality more so in the future. Uh, even in the present, things yeah. like this are cool. But I think what you mentioned, this opportunity to get people engaged in art, because not everyone immediately sees a painting as exciting, is really cool. Yeah. And in a broader sense, also, I think augmented reality can get people into video games specifically, because augmented reality can really make that more accessible if you're a person like if you look at everyone who played pokemon go last year yeah and the year before that or if you look at apple going to a gdc this year and talking about ar kit which is kind of a mind-boggling thing all of these big companies are kind of getting involved in augmented reality because i think they realize how important it is in terms of expanding gaming and its audience yeah, and I think, I mean, I take my parents as an example, right? My parents are, my dad is already 70, I think, and my mom is nearing 70. And while they're quite good with technology, uh, they're not, they haven't played computer games. They have no interest. My mom plays solitaire. My dad, like, I explain to him what I do and he nods and, you know, that's our conversation about it. And for that, and they can't understand VR, for example, they don't feel, they don't feel comfortable with VR, but something like 
AR is very simple. They don't need to do anything else but use their phone, which they know how to use generally, and just like discover this new exciting thing. I think AR has a lot of potential to be a huge success. I think a lot more than VR. Uh, sorry to our, all of my VR friends. Well, VR, even if, I mean, I think VR has potential too, but we're still farther from it because VR is more ambitious. Immediately, uh, yeah, you're right. It's not because like right now you need to put on this headset and this clunky wire. And even though AR isn't exactly streamlined, it's still, like you mentioned, a lot better just needing a phone. Yeah, I mean, look, we blink, you go to the museum, you download an app. It works in all the phones and you just put your app in front, like use the app, put it in front of the picture and you got it. You know, it's really simple where, you know, VR, yeah, you have the headset, they're expensive. Some people get motion sickness. They're really heavy. Like I can't wear like the uh, the Vive is really heavy for me. I can't wear it for long stretches of time because I'm not a big person and, you know, it was built for bigger guys, right? So I'm like... Not that I don't think VR has a lot of potential. In terms of accessibility, AR definitely wins out. And I think a really telling moment of that yeah. was, um, I think it was Apple that was doing a conference and they had someone from Epic Games demonstrating virtual reality. And uh, the person demonstrating it, she had an unfortunate accident where she yeah. tripped over a cable or something in the middle of it on stage. And I felt like really bad for her. Uh, but I think that's kind of a really good way to describe VR right now. It's It's awkward no matter how you do it. I got stuck in many walls while doing VR. Yeah, it's not it's not exactly a streamlined, easy process at the moment. So as a professor of game design, uh, which is your main job, and a frequent observer and commentator on that game design, what do you see as some interesting design trends in mainstream games that you could see emerging in the near future? So I talked about it before where this year was very interesting where a lot of smaller games or a lot of games that were not expected to be huge successes um, were huge successes. Uh, and a lot of games, you know, usually it was, you know, a AAA company will take out their $60 game, will earn, you know, a few million dollars a year cover their expenses, and will continue to do that particular genre. And this year was really interesting in a way that this wasn't working anymore. There was a lot of failures this year, big AAA failures, and there was a lot of mm -hmm. big successes that were not expected, even though it came from like big companies, uh, something like Horizon Zero Dawn uh, or even Breath of the Wild. In any other year, there would have been a huge risk. There were mm -hmm. a huge risk. Um, and they were still successful. Obviously, indie, I think what is happening more and more is because indie is doing interesting stuff and people are buying indie and the indie is making a lot of money. I think a lot of companies are looking and saying, oh, we can do this. We can do slightly, you know, we can sort of break our formula. And it's not like, you know, Ubisoft or something will stop making open world game, but they can make open world games that break their usual formula of open world game. I think that there's an interesting trend going on in games. We'll see where it takes us. But there's less fear of doing, you know, something weird. I guess this industry is maturing. Yeah, well, there was backlash this year to monetization in that a lot of the way a lot of these AAA games do it, like Battlefront with loot boxes, that became very unpopular this year. 
And like you mentioned, the Horizon Zero Dawn, Breath of the Wild, those big open world games, which continue to be successful. But then you saw like the Switch and that really changed things for indie games as well. Letting older games both, you know, succeed. They hadn't been so successful before. And these newer games come to the scene and explode because people had this new console and didn't have much to play on it. I mean, I think the Switch was the biggest thing that happened this year in 2017 in terms of the stuff that comes out and what you can do. And the fact that, you know, people will buy a $60 game if the $60 game is good and they will buy the DLC. Uh, and it's the same with like non-Switch game like Horizon Zero Dawn. There wasn't any, and it wasn't that they're perfect. Like I have critique about Horizon Zero Dawn in terms of gameplay, but they just gave you a game with a really interesting story and some really interesting combat. And there's obviously a lot of work done on it. And it's done by, well, AAA, it's not a huge company, the company who made it. And that was a huge success because they never asked for anything. It was like, here's a really good product, play a really good product. Same with the Switch, where a lot of other games, you know, loot box is not the issue in a way if the game is good. You know, people will stay still play, pay money to get loot box in Overwatch uh, because A, the loot boxes don't really change the gameplay and two, because it's part of the fun. I mean, Overwatch is a fun game. It's a well-made game with or without the loot boxes. Battlefront, well, not a bad game, but as far as I know, I haven't played it you know, was so dependent on that monetization that people were like, well, it's not fun without it. I'm not going to play. You haven't given me the full product. Instead, I can buy, you know, I don't know, Cuphead for $20 or something. I don't know how much Cuphead cost, you know, but a, a small indie one. And that would give me a lot more fun and all the excitement without like having to pay extra for extra stuff. I think people realize, like, if I'll, I'll talk to my friends, and it seemed like a lot of my friends who are into more mainstream games would say before, oh, what's the value of these shorter games? A lot of the time being indie, when I can get this, you know, this grind fest of a game and play it forever, because from a value perspective, that makes more yeah. sense. But I think people in general this year started to appreciate games that were just more simpler and more fun. I think it's also because we're, you know, we're all getting older. I don't have time to play a 60-hour game. I have time to play 10, a 10-hour 10 game, and so I would play the 10-hour game. In a way, I don't, I, I completely understand where the loot boxes and the, all those sort of money stuff come from. It's because games are, at least a AAA game, is becoming too expensive to make. Because uh, people are expecting, and, and that's, you know, that's in a way also the fault of the gamers themselves. You know, you're expecting, you want this high, insane high fidelity while, you know, having this amazing gameplay and having all of that. Well, you can't, while, you know, not waiting five years for your game, but waiting two years. And so the the current way this particular way of making games is going is not going well because games cannot be $60 games anymore. There's a lot of inefficiency in AAA. Like yeah. if you, you you just mentioned Cuphead, $20, that's a complete experience. And like arguably you're right. These AAA games are more ambitious, but they're also they're almost guaranteed to sell well. And I think the problem that these AAA publishers realize is they spend so much money on 
in some cases, unnecessary marketing. And there's a lot of, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to go into it too deeply because, I mean, I'm an armchair observer, but it seems like there's a lot of inefficient practices that could be shaved off given how much these games are already selling. And I think that's why people get more tired of it this year. It's basically, and I think that's an interesting case in this industry, and that's in India as well. All games are failures because the cost the cost doesn't isn't worth sometimes what you make of it. So, you know, Cuphead made a lot of money, but the guys who made Cuphead had to mortgage their house and it took them five years to make mm -hmm. the game in order to pay. And that's a similar problem, by the way, in film, in, in special effect. We, games are not financially viable as people think they are. Salaries in games are not as high as people think they are. They're quite low, actually, at least in Canada, but I'm quite sure in the US. You know, burnout is very fast. You need a lot of hours to make them. I think the model of making games has to change. Mm -hmm. uh, again, there's a lot of redundancies. There's a lot of like, there's a lot of procedures that you have to go through. The code is always a problem. The way they hire because of, and again, that depends on the company, but where you, you have stuff like crunch or certain hours, that means you can, you know, you hire the 20 years old just out of school because, you know, when you're 20, it's easier to crunch. The 30-something years old who have a family is not going to crunch. And they're also not going to, you know, get a, enjoy a 50K salary. They want much more money. And so they will leave the industry. And so the people with experience leave the industry. There's a t high turnover. Uh, you have to train all those people. There's all this stuff going on. And I think, like, we need to change the way we make games to make them a much more viable industry. Because right now, making a game means you're going to lose money, mm -hmm. whether it's indie or AAA. Right. Maybe we need to make games shorter, but more quality. I mean, it's it's easy for me to say that, but there's, a, there's definitely a lot of problems with making games that make it so difficult. You mentioned that uh, you know, you're in your 30s, and it, that's old in this industry, which is yeah, crazy, I'm right? But ending on a positive note, I want to talk about, you know, you are in your 30s, and you're in the games industry, and you teach about games. What keeps you in this industry? What makes you optimistic about it? I mean, for me, I just really liked making games. You know, it took me specifically a really long time to find that thing that I enjoy doing. Like I learned animation, I hate doing animation. I like, you know, we talked about, it. I like procedurality, I like systems, uh, I like all those stuff. So, so for me, it was just like, everything I ever want to do is in this thing. I'm also really lucky in a way because, you know, people piss on academia and, you know, teaching, you know, there's always the saying, if you teach, you can't do or whatever other stuff people do. But, you know, academia, pays better than working obviously it depends where you which university and what field you are but if you're like me in games and you do the more technical side of game i earn you know a decent salary working not a lot of hours and the thing academia lets me do is i can experiment and i can make weird stuff i can make something like the worksheet saga without having to worry about making money and you don't have to crunch yeah and like it hasn't, you know, it's not like I don't have that dream of working in, in, you know, AAA, but I don't know if I'll fit there anymore. Because of the culture? 
yeah, I think I probably will fight with everyone. Uh, just because I've gotten used to being independent at this point, uh, right. very clearly. I think, again, and I'm very lucky, I also live in Toronto, and Toron Ontario in general has quite a lot of funding for games. That's why we have such a large and very active uh, indie scene. Uh, because there is OMDC that gives money, and there's OEC, and there's uh, TAC, and all those uh, government funding that gives us money to make games. So I'm, you know, I can continue in my 30s making games and being an indie, and also maybe have a family and have kids, and not having to worry about, you know, the crunch and the long hours and the making enough money to sustain myself. But I'm very lucky. I'm also, you know. I mentioned it in another talk. I'm upper, you know, my parents are upper middle class. I'm an only child. If I have any problem, I can call my parents. I rather not do it for obvious reasons, but I have a, I have a safety net, so I can do it in my 30s. Not everyone can do that. And that's another thing the industry needs to start figuring out, like how do we retain people? If you look at the older generation, the people who made games in the 90s, in the 2000, like the late 90s, there are not a lot of them left. And not, you know, they didn't die or anything. They're just like, I'm tired. Why right. do I need to be in this industry anymore? I have a family. You know, let me find a job that will pay me more money for less work. Mm -hmm. So, you know, John Romero is still making games and, you know, Brenda Romero is still making games and a few others. Who else? Everyone else either retired or moved on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. or they teach. Yeah. Uh, and so I think there's like this weirdness in this industry where we have to understand, you know, uh, people say, oh, you know, you're in your 30s, your creativity. I've never been as creative in my 30s. I'm far more creative and interesting in my 30s than I've ever been in my 20s. My production, the stuff I make, I'm faster, I'm more interesting. Um, but I also am not going to work for, you know, 30K a year, right? Because right. I'm not. And so it's never... This into, we have to think about how to retain people. And obviously, like, now it's changing because, you know, people in the creative directors and stuff like that are, you know, people in their late 30s early 40s a lot of the time but if you look again if you look at the people who've been in here for a really long time in this industry not a lot of them stayed in the industry and that's a shame and i think you know if you compare it let's say to film you know people make film when they're 90 years old george miller the guy who yeah did mad max fury that's road exactly right? the example you yeah. know he was he's in his 70s or 80s and Mav he made mad max fury road he was 80 years old or something like that right yeah him and his wife yeah yeah do you see it in games no i can't see it happening yeah it's crazy i mean i guess that you mentioned john and brenda romero but that's just such an exception you know people yeah. at the top who are already really successful and that's hard in games because like i think games are still so fast moving where like it's yeah. harder to be successful for a long period of time. Like you have the people who made their money in the early PC days, like Romero yeah. or the people who made their money in mobile because yeah. there were a lot of people like that or people who made their money on steam and maybe people who are making fortunes now on switch. But how long is that going to last? 
in movies you don't have this thing where oh every like five or six years we're going to move to a new platform but in games you do yeah like movies also movie takes a few weeks to make um you know well, maybe film, but of... it takes longer to edit and do effects and everything yeah but like you know lord of the ring was the only movie that really took like a few years but most film like even with special effects and stuff like that you know big budget special effect movie will take about a year to make where a game will take you know the minimum is two years to make a game the the only industry that is in in has the same problem is animation by the way where it takes a few years to make a animated movie and so we want to move fast but you know you started your game four years ago and now the technology is completely different right Mm-hmm. Or, you know, Steam is no longer a viable choice. We'll have to think about it one day. Right. It's it's a difficult question for sure. But you're still in this industry. I want to end on a somewhat happy note. People want to follow you. People want to learn about your insights in the games. Where can they do that? And where can they check out your games? My name, just if you go with my name, I think I'm the only person alive with my name. So I'm really easy to find. Fachaik, uh, Twitter is Fachaik. Uh, my my website is Fachaik.com. Very, very easy to find. I'm pretty relatively active on Twitter. So it's usually the best way to contact me. Don't contact me on Facebook. I won't answer. But like, uh, yeah, it's pretty easy to contact me. Sometimes, you know, I'm too busy to obviously talk, but I have opinions on the internet and I will say my opinions opinions on the internet usually so it's not hard to not find me i also have a company called the really serious game company uh we just uh recently went incorporated so if you follow them we'll have updates about upcoming games that are made through that company so real army simulator and a few others but yeah very easy to find uh and if you google me the the only other person you can find maybe my dad so you know (laughs) that's nice yeah. I wish I had that search engine optimization. Thank you again for coming on. And uh, for everyone, those links will be in the description. So don't worry if you didn't catch those. And once again, thank you for listening to this episode, everyone. It was a longer one, but and probably a tougher one to edit. Uh, but it was fun. Uh, we I, had a I few do tech- talk a lot. That, but also we had some technical difficulties <laughs> uh, and stuff. But, you know, we got over it and uh, we, we see the sunshine now. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you. That's it for now. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, feel free to review us on Apple Podcast or Google Play. And any feedback you want to give us is also much appreciated. You can subscribe to us in basically every podcast app and of course on YouTube as well. There's also Twitter, which you want to follow to stay updated on new episodes of the show. Our Twitter is at PolyconsFM. And don't worry, everything will be linked in the description in case you didn't catch it. Thank you so much for listening to the end of our seventh episode. And I will see you with new guests next week. Until then, goodbye world.